0: To the silver screen. Welcome back listeners to our ninth installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series leading up to the release of Tenant, which just so as of this recording, as of 626, uh, Tenant just got pushed back for, I believe, the second time, which makes things tricky. But nevertheless, we're still going to finish off with Interstellar Now, Dunkirk next week, and we will jump back in and finish up the Jason Bourne movie reviews and then um, we're also going to as long as they don't move Bill and Ted around we're going to do the Bill and Ted movies and maybe other some other surprises as well Mm -hmm. now it's interesting because Interstellar didn't follow the July release pattern which has been Nolan's pattern for the last uh, three films Interstellar came out Wednesday November 5th 2014. At the time, Nolan was 44 years old, and he does come back to work with Warner Brothers again. Warner Brothers loves Nolan. He made them over a couple billion dollars. But the uh, draft, the idea for Interstellar was with Paramount, and Jonathan Nolan was on board with Interstellar way beforehand. I do talk about the production and how... Christopher Nolan came on board, which is actually kind of one of the last parts of um, how this movie came to be. This is not an original idea from Christopher Nolan. There are original ideas in here, but this is not one of his original films. This was actually originally going to be a Steven Spielberg movie. But in Your Guide to Interstellar, which came out last week, I talk about all of that in depth to give you a full background on it. But just some brief um, background details here real quick is this is Nolan's longest film at a whopping 168 minutes, very close to three hours.
1: Yes, it's, it's it's basically three hours at this point. It's like, what, two hours and 50 minutes when you do the conversion from minutes to yep. hours. So, yeah. And now, it isn't much longer than The Dark Knight Rises, but it's still almost three hours. Yeah,
0: it's about four minutes longer, technically than The Dark Knight Rises, but nevertheless, Nolan's first movie was 70 minutes. He's come a long way. Now, Mm -hmm. the Letterboxd rating is an extremely high 4.1.
1: For Letterboxd, they typically, from what we've noted, begin to gravitate towards the three and a half range for movies that are about the same IMDb score, Um, but 4.1 very well, very respectable score on non-letter box.
0: In a very high rating on IMDb of
1: 8.6.
0: Very high. Oh, yeah. And currently it is considered the 30th greatest film of all time, according to the IMDb Top 250. Um, the meta score is kind of surprising to me because it's a 74. Um, mm-hmm. Now, no one has scored... He actually usually scores in the 70s. Um, He has gone higher than that. But nevertheless, um, The Dark Knight Rises got a 78. Um, He has had one other 74, and that was Inception. So you'll notice this movie is kind of on track scoring-wise with Inception. Um, Inception had an 8.8 on IMDb. Um, Now, this is actually very surprising that this is the lowest uh critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. For really? Nolan, this is still technically certified fresh, but it has a 72% approval rating. Not bad, mm. but for Nolan, this is very low. Um yeah. he's never got in the 70s before except for one occasion and that was with The Prestige with the 75%. So critics consider this technically Rotten Tomatoes critics consider this to be Nolan's worst film. I hate to say that because it's still very positive. Interesting.
1: Yeah, that it is surprising that uh, this is the movie that critics feel is, so far at least, the least liked Nolan film according to critics. That's interesting to me. Um, given his other track record, I would, I would assume that maybe Insomnia or something like that would have been lower.
0: Um, no, Insomnia is actually very high at a uh, 92%. <laughs> That's
1: right, I forgot.
0: So audiences on Rotten Tomatoes still give it an 85%, very positive. Now, as far as Cinema mm. Score goes, this got a B plus from audiences, mm. which your guide to Interstellar, I speculate the reason is due to the runtime and due to the incredibly dense plot.
1: Yeah, that would make sense.
0: So, but this is um, not too surprising also, because like I said, this runs on track with Inception, Inception also got a B plus. And also like Inception, this has a comparable budget of $165 million. Mind you, it is financed by Warner Brothers Paramount, Legendary, Ops Productions. Um, here's one that will probably surprise you, Alan, and probably surprise the listeners. This film came in at number two at the box office opening weekend.
1: Did it really? I yeah, that that is surprising to me. I would have expected it to come in at number one, just like most other especially in more more recent Nolan films
0: all of his movies for the past one two three four five years had come in at number one um this movie came in at number two with a v- extremely weak opening weekend of hmm. only 47 million dollars interesting this is one of his lowest opening weekends since the prestige yeah Now, this movie did open in 3,500 theaters. It had quite uh, a big opening. So, maybe this part will kind of fill out the puzzle. So, Disney's Big Hero 6 came out that weekend. And that was number one. That's right. I do
1: remember this. I've seen this in the theater. Um, I remember getting very hyped for this movie when it was coming out. Um, So... I guess it doesn't really surprise me that Big Hero Six beat it um, because it is a Disney picture. Um, still surprising though that a no one picture came in at number two, especially now th- at this time after doing The Dark Knight and then Inception. How his now one of his other movies is coming at number two, surprising to me. But I guess because of Big Hero Six is not
0: too surprising. So, Interstellar came in at number two. Gone Girl came in at number three. Oh, I didn't realize that came out this week, too. Wow. Yeah, and Ouija came in at number four, and Fury at number five. So, a really weird box office weekend. Yeah, it is also
1: November. (laughs) So, uh, it's going to get some of the weirder releases around this time. Not quite Oscar bait yet, but getting really close.
0: Domestically, it didn't do very well. It grossed $188 million. Hmm when you consider that against the 165 million dollar budget um it just didn't do great yeah. here in the states foreign it did pretty well with 489 million um and with a worldwide total of 677 million dollars that's surprisingly low because
1: we noted that the last two movies are yeah the the last few movies have either gotten close to a billion or have crossed the billion mark, especially with those Dark Knight movies. And now to see this, which is technically a more original work, kind of like Inception, seeing it now not gain as nearly as much
0: money is surprising. I mean, it makes sense that at least The Dark Knight Rises, that was the conclusion to a trilogy, that was a billion dollars, The Dark Knight was a billion. Inception was the dark horse at 828 million dollars So it did fall below Inception, Mm -hmm. but once again, Inception wasn't as long and it was more imaginative, I would say. It was more about, it was complete fantasy, whereas this is more so about hard, real science. Um, And we'll talk about the trailer in a minute, whether that would really get audiences eager. So this movie did make it to the Oscars, which should be no surprise. Nolan has been, every time a Nolan movie comes out, He's likely going to be um, at the Oscars, except we did note it was an odd gap for The Dark Knight Rises not to be there.
1: Yeah, yeah. uh,
0: Because otherwise, he's been there for everything, almost. So this movie was nominated for visual effects. It did win the Oscar for that, and I would say rightly so. Now, in a kind of a shocking move in some ways, the Grand Budapest Hotel beat this out for production design and original score.
1: Yes, I remember this, too, because I... I remember being mad (laughs) that the Grand Budapest Hotel won for best score when the Oscars came around because I remember at the time I was obsessed with the score of Interstellar Um, Mm -hmm. and I was like, it should have won. There's no way anything else should (laughs) have gotten it. Um, My thoughts have kind of changed. I do really enjoy the Grand Budapest Hotel score. It's great. But yeah, I remember at the time I was so mad that it didn't win that Oscar.
0: And it is an interesting... um, Also, that Whiplash won out for sound mixing right now. American Sniper won for sound editing. Hmm.
1: Yeah, this is one of the few years where sound mixing and sound editing don't have the same movie that wins both. You see that quite Mm -hmm. often where the same movie will will win both categories.
0: So, Alan, you did mention that you were very hyped for this movie and you saw it in the theaters. So going back today, jumping into the future, does this trailer for the movie still get you excited to see it?
1: Absolutely, yes. Because we've noted in the last few trailers from Nolan, they've kind of all been like obtuse. Like they're not giving you everything to the story. They're kind of like giving you pieces of the movie. This trailer really makes me excited because it's a Christopher Nolan space epic similar to that of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, which is very intriguing to me. I remember at the time, every trailer that came out, I was watching every detail that was updated on IMDb. I was on board because I was super hyped for Interstellar. Because at this point, I was pretty big on the Christopher Nolan train and I was ready for his next movie to come out. So, yes, if back in the day, it got, obviously got me in the theater. And if there were a new one coming out, I'd still be very excited to go see it.
0: I do find it interesting that. um, the trailer for Man of Steel, which came out the year before this mm-hmm. with Nolan acting as producer, the teaser trailer and the trailer for Man of Steel are very similar. Also, there's the whole um, Kansas farm and Man of Steel and the farm here. So yep. you can see Nolan's influence working on that movie as well. But yeah, the teaser trailer, I watched the teaser trailer and I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, it really showcased um, American ingenuity throughout the years and then really teased you as what could this movie be about and then i did watch the other three trailers they came on my blu-ray copy i didn't think the first trailer was all that great but trailer two was really good that would get me hyped and i wouldn't recommend trailer three but nevertheless i was hyped to see this movie i did get to see it in imax and it was just a mind-blowing experience well, listeners, if you haven't seen Interstellar and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, which I highly recommend, just don't ever let a Nolan film be spoiled for you. Yeah. Just experience yeah. them as fresh as possible. Then click pause right now. Go ahead and watch the movie and come back and click play. We'll be ready to talk about it. Okay, you ready for this plot, Alan? I'm actually excited.
1: I'm excited to see if <laughs> how much you're able to piece together. It's about four I,
0: pages long.
1: I believe it. I'm I'm not surprised.
0: Okay, let's do it. All right. In the not too distant future, the world has experienced catastrophe on a grand scale. There are no more armies and no more wars. History has been rewritten to the detriment of the United States. The new generation are farmers instead of inventors. There are no more wars because there is no more food. Blight has slowly been corrupting crops to the point they are no longer sustainable for growth. Not to mention, a second dust bowl has overtaken the Midwest, the very place where our crops grow. On a farm lives Cooper, played by Matthew McConaughey. Merv, played by Mackenzie Foy. Tom, played by Timothy Chalamet. Forgot that. Yeah, I
1: forgot he was in this. I I totally forgot he was in this.
0: So basically, every single person in this movie is a star. This is a star-studded movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Donald, the children's grandfather, played by John Lithgow. While driving to school one day, they spot an Indian drone, which they capture in order to power their farm. Also, their farming machines are going haywire. Later, Murph believes there is a ghost in her room, knocking over books and creating lines of dust. Cooper chalks it up to a gravitational anomaly, but Murph believes the ghost is communicating through Morse code. In fact, the ghost was. It said stay by knocking over books, but... Her father realizes the code made up of lines of dust is binary. The code is coordinates which leads them to the decommissioned NORAD in Colorado, but that doesn't mean it's uninhabited. Murph and Cooper are captured by none other than NASA, led by the illustrious Professor Brand, played by Michael Caine. In fact, Professor Brand and Cooper know each other from the days Cooper worked with him on experimental NASA space planes. Brand explains, humanity was born on Earth, but it wasn't meant to stay there forever. Many scientists have already traveled to other planets searching for a new Earth. The only way it has become possible to travel outside our solar system is due to the appearance of a wormhole located near Saturn. Mind you, wormholes just don't appear, they are placed. It seems there is a higher power affording these talented people of Earth the opportunity to save mankind. A second expedition must go check on the scientists in order to find which planet is viable. If possible, they'll relocate the people of Earth to this planet. That's plan A. Otherwise, they'll start a colony with embryos. That's plan B. Professor Brand talks Cooper into leading the mission since he is a natural leader and the best pilot for the job. But he promises Cooper that upon his return to Earth that his life's work will be complete, solving the gravity equation i.e. the ability to harness gravity and therefore time in order to get people off of the planet. He agrees to pilot the Endurance, but this causes a major rift in his relationship with his young daughter. Before departing, he leaves his watch to her to remind her he'll be back. Cooper travels with scientist Romilly, played by David Gaiassi, Dr. Doyle, played by Wes Bentley, and Professor Brand's daughter, Dr. Brand, played by Anne Hathaway. Oh, and two ex-military AI machines, TARS, voiced by Bill Irwin, and Case, voiced by Josh Stewart, who played Barsad in The Dark Knight Rises, the guy with the sniper rifle. Okay. I, yeah. I was really shocked that was his voice. That's cool. After exiting the wormhole, they first travel to Dr. Miller's Planet, but at a great cost. See, Dr. Miller's Planet is located close to a collapsed star, a.k.a. a black hole they have dubbed Gargantua. Remember, the greater the mass of an object, the stronger its gravitational pull. Since Miller's planet is located so close to Gargantua, the gravitational pull causes time to move much faster. Hence, an hour on the planet means seven years passes on Earth. Cooper, Brand, and Doyle land only to find Miller's ship destroyed, but the data intact. The only problem is a monstrous tsunami is threatening to swamp their ships. Well, not necessarily a tsunami, but a giant wave. Disaster hits the mission when Brand goes for Miller's data, costing them time to take off and ultimately Doyle's life. Brand and Cooper survive the giant wave, but it floods the engines, meaning they have to waste more time. Eventually, they escape the planet and return to the Endurance. Once they return, they find Romilly has been waiting 23 years, while only a few hours passed for them on the planet. In an emotional moment, Cooper finds years of video messages waiting for him. His children are now his age. Tom, now played by Casey Affleck, is married with a child, but the child shortly passes away due to the harmful dust. Grandpa has died, and Murph, now played by Jessica Chastain, who has never sent him a video message all these years, on her birthday, desperately hopes he's still coming back. Now we jump back to Earth to find Murph is actually working at NASA with Professor Brand, still attempting to solve the gravity equation. Alas, Professor Brand's life comes to an end with the heartbreaking revelation the possibility of the gravity equation was always a myth. He did solve half of the equation years ago, but the actuality of it was never possible unless they could receive data only found within a black hole. Hence, he had to trick all of the crew of going on the mission, believing they were saving the people of Earth, which was plan A, whereas the purpose was always plan B, starting a new colony with embryos. Murphy bitterly relays the message to her father, now confident in the belief he abandoned them, along with the passing of Brand's father. Meanwhile, the remaining crew decide to venture to Dr. Mann's planet instead of Dr. Edwards. Mann was the best of them, and his data is still relaying, whereas Edwards' data stopped three years ago. Not to mention, they simply don't have the time anymore. This is a difficult decision for Brand. Come to find out, she loved Edwards. Once they reach man's planet, they wake him from hypersleep. We're surprised to find he is played by none other than Matt Damon, Jason Bourne himself.
1: This was very surprising (laughs) in the theater because they tried really hard to keep that he was in this movie under wraps when it came out.
0: Oh yeah, it was a big surprise to me. Mm. Cooper isn't staying long though, only to help the crew set up for plan B. He's decided he's lost enough time with his family and since it was all a lie to begin with, he would rather die with them than on a frozen planet. Man and Cooper travel out to some way stations, but to Cooper's shock, Man attempts to murder him. See, for years, Man resisted sending a signal to have a new crew come and get him. As soon as he landed on the planet, he realized it wasn't habitable, which was something he never thought would happen to him. But the loneliness and bitter end he faced was too much, so he duped the crew to come to him. He can't let Cooper leave with the Endurance because he wants to get back to Earth. In a daring rescue mission, Brand saves Cooper, Romilly dies in a rigged explosion, and man escapes the planet. The only problem is, man can't dock with the Endurance because TARS disabled the auto dock. Cooper attempts to tell man if he tries to dock, it'll depressurize the cabin, causing an explosion. Well, that's exactly what happens. Man perishes, and the Endurance is now caught in an unbreakable spin. But the mission can't end this way. It's necessary, in order to save mankind, that Cooper dock with the Endurance. In an intense scene, Cooper safely docks, but at the expense of most of their fuel. Knowing he'll never see his family again, Cooper and Bran decide to use the last remaining fuel while harnessing the gravitational pull of Gargantua to slingshot to Edward's planet. TARS will jettison into the black hole and attempt to relay the data back to Earth, so Murph can complete the gravity equation and hopefully still save Earth. But Cooper kept something from Brand. He had to shed even his weight for Brand to make it. And one last goodbye, Cooper goes straight into the black hole, waiting to meet his doom. Except, he doesn't die. He is transported into a tesseract a hypercube, a fifth dimension where he has now transcended time. While maneuvering through time, he realizes something profound. All those years ago, he was Murph's ghost. Cooper realizes he was sent on the journey for a reason. He sends himself to NASA. He pushes the books, and he is the only one capable of transferring TARS's data from the black hole. While looking into Murph's room, he sees the watch he gave her lying on the bookshelf. In Morse code, he transmits the data. His mission is complete. He realizes now that he has saved humanity on Earth, that in the future they will achieve a fifth dimension, hence their ability to save themselves in the past. The tesseract closes and Cooper's floating body is recovered. He wakes up in a hospital, not on Earth, but a giant space vessel called Murphy Station, where the gravity equation has come to fruition her life can bend and move in a giant cylinder. Finally, well into her 100s, father and daughter are reunited. She is so happy to see her father, but she tells him no parent should have to watch their child die. She tells him to go find a brand, and that's what he does, as credits roll. Woo. All right, <laughs> good job, Corbett. <laughs> Thanks.
1: I mean, at this point, it's kind of a given that <sighs> if we're going to have a no one movie, its plot's going to be kind of complex and long to get through
0: yeah except i'm jealous because next week you get to do the plot for dunkirk
1: which is like a slim
0: (laughs) 140 minutes and yep uh, (laughs) yep but you know what
1: let's just go ahead and talk about this plot since we're already talking about it um it's long it's two almost three hours long um but I remember noticing this in the theater, and I still kind of notice this now. It doesn't really feel like three hours; it's long. Yes. No, it feels long, but I think that no one's pace keeps it from feeling, uh, keeps it from feeling like it's just dragging on.
0: Yeah, it never gets boring, and that is something that I think a lot of filmmakers aren't necessarily good at um Villeneuve Villeneuve did it with blade runner 2049 i was always invested in that movie i yeah. think what i appreciate is nolan has a story to tell and if it's going to take him three hours to tell it then that's how long it's going to take if his next movie is dunkirk if it's going to take him like i said a little over an hour and a half to tell that story and that's how much yeah. time he needs so I think he does an incredible job of using time, of structuring all three acts that they all pay off in a great way. And uh, this movie is also so emotionally investing that the three hours, I mean, you're just sucked in. And mm-hmm. it also is kind of unique because this is such a long, long, vast journey for them that does take place over a 100 years, essentially. The three hour movie helps you feel that as well
1: yeah absolutely and it's also interesting and just the idea alone is interesting it's a it's a space epic that is directed by Christopher Nolan like that's just those words alone make this movie almost instantly intriguing to me and they did back in the day when I heard the name when I saw the name interstellar and saw the very first poster they put out I was like, oh man, is this like is this gonna be a space epic made by Christopher Nolan? It's such an intriguing idea. And now this does pull off of a lot of elements from 2001 One and Space Odyssey. I think those are pretty uh they're kind of hard to miss, especially if you've if you've seen the movie. Right. Now, at the time I hadn't seen it. Uh now, of course, I have. I do see some of the elements where they elements that they lifted off of. Um, but it's you never really see this anymore. A big space epic nowadays, you never really see that. So it's kind of unique already that it's Kind of like doesn't want a space odyssey, but made it in a more modern time um, with a more for a more modern audience.
0: Yeah, most space movies were just kind of action sci fi. This movie really does pride itself in having solid science behind everything we see. Yeah. Now, yeah. not everything is explainable or provable per se. But nevertheless, this is all based on real theories. And mm-hmm. I talk about this in the guide but uh, Kip Thorne, who is an extremely smart quantum astrophysics guy, he was there with Nolan the whole time working on the script with him, making sure that everything was correct. Um, I just know at one point Nolan wanted a character to go faster than the speed of light. And Thorne said, are you kidding me? No. And so <laughs> yeah. I was thankful for that, but it is cool. And even Thorne, I watched the special features, Thorne gave the visual artist like algorithms and codes for like um, equations, I should say, for how a black hole would technically work. Mm -hmm. And they created that. They plugged it in the computer and he was blown away by actually seeing what a black hole would really look like. So you can rest assured knowing the science, all of this stuff is very accurate.
1: Yeah, I think that's what makes this movie so... I, would, I guess so deep when you really want to dig into how we really want to dig into like what is real, and what isn't. Most of it is, I think there's a few things where they take creative liberties. Um, in, But for the most part, everything that you see or hear, or everything that happens, there's some kind of scientific backing to it. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was, oh, I forget where it was, but Neil deGrasse Tyson had briefly talked about this movie. And he said, if I were to rate this movie on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like, the most accurate, uh, and one being absolutely not. This is close to an eight or a nine in accuracy to what is portrayed and uh, its real life counterparts. So yeah, I think that's what. And I remember this is also uh, again when I was obsessed with this movie when it came out. I was looking up um, like all the things in this, all the like the scientific stuff in this movie. Like what it, what are what are they trying to explain, and how real is that? And it was interesting to see that. Pretty much all of it is real, uh, again, with some creative liberties, but pretty much everything here has some scientific backing to it, like some real scientific backing to it, which is surprising when you put it in a three hour space epic.
0: Yeah. And I know, um, like, the producer, Emma Thomas, Nolan's wife, Mm -hmm. said that they also wanted, they would hope, they were hoping, like, kids would see this movie or young teenagers, and that would actually inspire them to yeah. go on to do things with outer space really pushing the limits their current limits of science and technology. Right, so this isn't right. just a movie just a pop, you know, a popcorn blockbuster type movie but also they're hoping it's inspirational. And that is one thing I would say is inspirational about this movie is the fact that it is kind of about the American ingenuity mm-hmm. and um the drive to just go beyond and go greater. Um, so I really loved that. And the, I know some people thought it was kind of heavy handed in the first act, but I do love those scenes where Ma- McConaughey is saying, We're not meant to be caretakers. We're meant to be explorers. And yeah. I do think it yeah. does drive at the heart of kind of striving beyond, especially because we're kind of living in this eerie time where I feel like we're getting close to reverting back to the dark ages. Yeah. And that's, that's the world they live in in this movie where. Um, the textbooks have been rewritten to say the moon landing was fake, and now all of this stuff is currently going on to kind of erase history just for no good reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see all these statues being torn down. Whether you think that's right or wrong or not, we're not here to talk about that. But nevertheless, it's still historical. And uh, when you also see them, they have to put on masks in the future because of the dust. Well, we have to put on masks because of the virus. So, right. once again, right. Nolan is Mr. Predicting the future here.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's also intriguing as well because uh, it's very much hearkening on the Thirties, right? The, the Great Depression happened right. around this time. Uh, of course, the Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. um, as this also pretty much practically... Uh, recreated here in this movie is rolling through so in a lot of ways this is humanity as you were just saying kind of regressing Mm -hmm. um they are pulling things out of textbooks for various reasons um it feels like they're playing it they're playing it very safe which makes sense because there there's been this big blight that's kind of come across the entire world and because of that humanity is losing food well, because they're trying to play it safe and conservative as Cooper, and it's kind of what this his whole character stands for, they've lost what makes them human. They've lost what what we're meant to be doing, which is exploring and going out there and finding new things. And I remember they also talk. one of the uh, conversations that he has with the, with the teachers is about how they pulled out that section of the textbook where they land on the mood and say, oh, it's a hoax. Because I know that there are definitely There's a definite uh, group of people out there that believe that the moon landing was a hoax (laughs) and was directed by Stindy Kubrick back in the 60s. Uh,
0: Yes. It is so bizarre, but Mm -hmm. it is great to see that this is a movie also, I think, trying to call out the state of our world also of how we all have just kind of – it's kind of just lost that adventurous spirit, it seems like. We have lost that bravery. We have lost that strength. Uh, we just seemingly don't really have those role models anymore. And I do like that Nolan puts in this film um, a man and a woman at the forefront. And they're both, uh, well, multiple women actually and men. But they are both bring their strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the woman is more compassionate than the man. And sometimes the man is a little more logical in certain things it seems like so just kind of highlighting the strengths and weaknesses is really nice to see as well um and especially to encourage both you know uh men and women and kids as well i, th- I really appreciated that um i do also uh think this movie is strong on themes now I, Sometimes maybe they are exactly spelled out, but nevertheless, the fact that he at least puts them in there, I I appreciate because you just don't see some of these themes anymore: themes yeah. of like fatherhood, love, and faith, and even of transcendence. Those are all very big driving forces in the plot of this movie.
1: Yeah, and classic Nolan as well. He his plots are kind of driven around a central like idea, um, not necessarily a. Uh, plot device, but an idea. In this case, it's more centered around the idea of love, right? Uh, Love is the thing that that spans, that can go between time and dimension, right? That's kind of like the main crux, especially in the second half of the story. Um, So it's that idea of love. It's uh, the idea that Cooper is willing to leave his family to save the world so he can return to his family, right? It's the love connection that he has with his family that drives him to do what he needs to do and then come back. Um, now we do get to see how that may sometimes judge, uh, cloud his judgment. Same with Professor Brand or same with Doctor Brand, um, but either way, that's their driving force. And it's interesting too because when you when it gets down to the last like third of the movie, they're the only two who are only two remaining humans left on those missions. Not just the Lazarus missions, but also the mission that they were sent out on. The two that are driven by love, Professor Bren's wanting to go and meet Wolf Edwards, or Edmonds, and uh, obviously, uh, Cooper is wanting to get back to his family. The two that are driven by love are the two that survive, right? so. Again, this is classic. No one at this point, he's structured his movie around an idea that kind of takes on these characters and it's those characters who follow that idea are the ones that make it out.
0: And love is a transcendental concept. It's not necessarily tangible. You can't hold it or necessarily look at it, but it's something that moves within everyone, something that everyone needs. And we act on love. Right. And we also act on faith. That's something I thought was fascinating on Professor Brand's deathbed. He told the adult Murph, he said, you had faith that we could do it. Whereas Professor Brand had lost faith and he really didn't seem to have the belief that Murph does. Now, Murph is the constant skeptic, but I do appreciate Mm -hmm. that somebody in here, we need that some kind of desperation of why are you doing this to us and how are you going to save us? And that's where um, the themes of like fatherhood plays in of sometimes we never always understood why our parents did things. Yeah. And, you know, so our parents weren't perfect and you know what, maybe he did make the wrong choice. Um, Cooper did because he he is the one that does the Morse code that says stay because he doesn't want to leave. But then at the same time, you come to find out it was all for her benefit and the benefit of the world in the long run. And I think that's also something that hopefully your parent would do is sometimes you wouldn't understand it, but it was for your benefit because they loved yeah. you.
1: Yeah. And I know that that's what one originally what he was going for um, with the when he was kind of getting the script ready was he wanted to go for a father-son relationship. That was the original idea. Oh. And so mm. one of the interesting things about the music about this, I know uh, he had talked to Hans Zimmer and they kind of crafted the music along while he was preparing the script. So they were kind of done roughly at the same time. Um, so if you have, I think it's on this special edition, I think, um, there is a track on there called like Day One, I want to say. Uh, essentially, it's the original... Um, composition that he made when no one came to him and says, all right, write me something about a father-son relationship. And then Hans Zimmer took that and went and wrote something out. Come to find out, he came back later with it. And he's like, okay, actually, actually, this is about a father-daughter <laughs> relationship. Um, and I
0: like that decision to change it.
1: Yeah, like you were like like you're just saying, you know, this movie is definitely harnessing on parenthood, some kind of, of parenthood, right? And how we don't necessarily wholly understand why our parents do certain things when we we're little, but we come to understand later why and again that's because they they do certain things or they um don't let us do certain things out of out of love out of their love for us that's why they make certain decisions that we don't fully understand as a kid
0: and i do like how those dynamics are portrayed amongst all of the characters where professor brand is a is the father to doctor brand he's also a father figure to cooper and eventually mm-hmm. a father figure to murph and even Donald, their grandfather, he's a father figure as well. Unfortunately, he doesn't seem to get to do a lot. But we know yeah. that he did raise Tom to become a farmer who does his best to take care of his family. But I do like how some of these father figures do let these characters down in major ways. Um, even the inclusion of Dr. Mann, which upon this viewing, I realized how much they kept referencing and bringing him up. Cause I was listening for it and he is brought up as this great scientist and come to find out he's just this like weak charlatan this whole mm. time. And so the character dynamics relationship dynamics are incredible how they all play out and how there's like betrayal and their salvation. Those are so good to watch unfold.
1: Yeah, and I think that, especially this time around, we've noted that in past No One movies, characters tend to be kind of walking exposition spillers. And we've also seen that, they've, that the dialogue has been getting better. Oh, yeah. Um Coming from movie to movie, it seems to be getting better where it's not so clunky with this exposition. Uh, I'd say here, there's still some clunkiness to it, especially when it comes to them talking about how love is the thing that transcends time and gravity and whatnot. That's where it gets kind of clunky. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But in terms of making these characters relatable and making at least me feel for them when, especially that scene when uh, when Matthew McConaughey's character watches 23 years of backed up footage from his family sending him videos, it's heartbreaking. And you really, really feel that. I think that no one here does the best job he's ever done when he makes these characters um, emotionally investing. I think this is so far his most emotionally investing, a uh, mostly investive movie that I've seen.
0: It is, and because I thought Inception, uh, especially as that movie progressed and got towards the end, was very emotionally investing. I will oh, say yeah, this it, is more yeah. emotionally investing as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when Cooper is watching the footage, um, and he realized within the span of three hours, twenty-three, he just lost twenty-three years. Mm-hmm. That I remember how big that hit me in the theater. I was shocked when realizing Romilly, Romilly thought he'd probably wait up there for maybe a year or so to study the black hole. And I thought he was there for 23 years by himself. And Dr. Mann was there for a year. And then I think in hypersleep for like two years and (laughs) he he couldn't hack it.
1: Uh, But I I do want to briefly talk about uh, kind of, I guess continuing on what we are, we're just talking about that father-daughter relationship because in a blink of an eye, like like you just said, in a blink of an eye, three hours goes by for the father, but in reality, back on earth, it's been 23 years, right? So there's definitely an allegory there to just parenting in general, where um, I'm not exactly a parent, but I hear this all the time. You know, they grow up so fast, is I guess the quote that everyone hears, at least at some point in their life. Um, it They grow up so fast where he doesn't, even though it feels like, like no time for him has passed, 20 plus years has passed for, people back on Earth, right? So, it's kind of, it, it's mind-bending as well as it is emotionally impactful because you realize that he hasn't been there for his kids for 23 years, right? And so, there is also the allegory there of parenting when it comes to uh, when it comes to raising your kids as well where the time will just kind of fly by and next thing you know, they're living on their own.
0: It does give like a whole new twist to that, a whole new meaning. They grow up so yeah. fast and there is that like emotion conveyed of just that like separation and there's like no way that he is ever going to be able to get that time back and it's not like he can just hop in the car and go see them they are separated Mm -hmm. by so much space and time that you do feel that and especially when McConaughey is just breaking down in that performance watching his grandson is born and then his grandson dies and then his uh, father-in-law dies and then he finally gets to see Murph all grown up. And the last time he saw her was, you know, I mean, by the time they traveled out there, I don't know, it was probably like a year or two and so much time has passed uh, back on Earth yeah, um, because it's different how they travel through space. Uh, that is just a really heart-rendering moment. Oh, absolutely. Oh, but I got to say... I do love the line from Dr. Brand. I wrote it down where she said, love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends the dimensions of time and space. I do like Mm -hmm. that line. I mean, it's true. Um,
1: I mean, you're right. It (laughs) is. uh, It's also kind of, you know, straightforward and not too subtle. I mean, I guess
0: if they were, I guess they necessarily didn't need to say it in order to convey it Mm -hmm. because I think we both understood how important love is for that. And even when I think he's in the Tesseract, he's like, it's love. Can't you see it's love that is what's uh, bringing us together? You know, I think in some ways I don't necessarily mind their calling that out because there is a lot of techno jargon that is going to go over a lot of people's heads. So calling yeah. out the major themes, I think, helps to kind of help the audience focus on the what's really important Instead of just letting their eyes continually glaze over as they talk about gravity,
1: it's just mind-bending when they get to uh, uh, Miller's planet, the first planet they stop at, and you know, as we were talking about, three hours goes by for them, but in reality, it's twenty-three years. Like that's kind of hard to wrap your brain around because the because the planet is so close to Gargantua, the time for it is much much different um, than anything else. Uh, So yeah, in some ways, yes, I do agree with you that it's nice that there are the main idea, the main core idea, it, when anyone's going for it is kind of spelled out. That way you don't have to like sit there and dig for it um, because there is so much technical jargon here. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I do like a lot of subtlety in my movies where I don't necessarily have to be told what the movie's about. I kind of want to discover it for myself.
0: Now, what do you think of the whole Dr. Man sequence? Because I would say that's probably one of my f- favorite parts in the movie and does have some of Mm -hmm. the best writing is after the two of them fight and Matt Damon's dialogue is just so rich. Um, I -hmm. really loved that whole section of the movie. And the twist was, I'll never forget that twist in the theater where he does try and murder him so he can escape. That was always so shocking to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially this time around, um, I find it more intriguing now because you do get to see a man... (laughs) <laughs> living in isolation uh, for so long what it can do to somebody somebody who lives at li- going so long without a seeing another human face without living with some kind of somebody to love in your life this is what it does to you. you become in this in his case, he becomes very deceptive and becomes uh, he becomes kind of self-centered because he wants to survive and especially when it, he really turns on these characters I would say right when he right when Cooper, uh, reveals to him that yeah I'm going to I'm going to hell I'm going to go home because he does after he they find out that Professor Brand was kind of lying about this whole thing he decides uh, Cooper decides that he wants to go home well when he mentions this to Doctor Mann um, that's when Doctor Mann I would I say turn starts to formulate his turn on these characters and so you get to see and I it's it's kind of at first it was like oh yeah he's a you know it's he's just another stumbling block for these characters and he's you know a, a naturally bad person he's an antagonist for these characters but watching it now, I don't necessarily believe that as much yeah I see and he's a stumbling block and uh, an obstacle for our characters but it's also a warning sign for these characters and understanding now you know why he is acting this way makes his character feel a little bit more I guess realistic because he's acting you know he's acting in a way where this is what happens when you're just in isolation for so long, and he wants to get back to where Cooper is trying to go for. Uh, that's why I found his character to be most interesting, is now seeing that when I haven't seen it before.
0: He also serves to showcase the opposite. He's the literal opposite of Cooper's character, because yeah. Cooper is yeah. going to persevere no matter the cost. He's going to figure out a way to achieve it. Even so far, as going into a black hole, and he's rewarded with being placed into a higher dimension. Whereas, and especially if you listen this time around, Dr. Mann inspired 12 other astronauts to go to other planets. Yeah, He was their leader. He was like the greatest of them all. And that's what makes his fall so shocking. His fall from grace is so shocking when you come to find out that he couldn't hack it and his uh, presuppositions were all entirely arrogant when he said, I never considered my my planet wouldn't be the one. Yeah, He's like, I assumed it would be. So he just becomes utterly selfish and he's just ready to go back to earth and abandon the mission and without, with complete disregard for other people's, all these other lives that he's going to put in jeopardy. Um, but he justifies it in such a fascinating way by saying like, I'm here for you, Cooper, as you're dying, even as you're dying, you won't die alone. I'll let you, I'll die with you, even though I'm the the cause of it. So his entire sequence is it, just powerful. And even this time around, when I knew the airlock was going to blow, I still jumped. I, I still jumped because it just gets me out mid sentence. And then we can't not talk about the scene where he has to achieve the same spin to lock on Uh, with Hans Zimmer's score. Yeah. The no time for
1: caution scene. Yeah.
0: No time for caution. I know this time around that this whole sequence, I was just by the time, um, Cooper is getting rescued where they're having to speed through the planet. And there's that shot of the ice in the air and the ice on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it's just like all coming together. Oh my gosh. And then he has to spin with the score. I'm, I'm like, starting to well up yeah. because I'm that emotionally invested in the scene.
1: Yeah. I remember in the theater um, when they had the no time for caution scene, uh, when mm-hmm. you know the airlock blows and the endurance starts going into an uncontrollable spin and starts going back down towards man's planet. Um, that, that until they finally latch on and make it out. I remember that at the time was one of the most intense sequences I'd ever seen. I was so invested in it that I had, I was, I don't don't do this very often either. I was white knuckling the seat when I watched it initially in the theater. Um, Remember it being very, very intense. And even today, it's still a very well done sequence because uh, again, Hans Zimmer's score, which is, uh, we've already kind of mentioned here and there, it's pretty incredible here, um, does a really, really good job at portraying, you know, that desperation to grab on back to that, back onto the ship. Um, and how this is going, because of this event, how, what is this going to do to our character's journey? How much is it going to affect the character's journey? Are they even going to be able to make it back home if they don't get this, if they don't grab onto the endurance, um, what's going to be the state of humanity after that? So yeah, I think no one does a very good job in this sequence.
0: Yeah, I was white knuckling it and I'll never forget the line where TARS says something like, this isn't advisable you do this and he says no it's necessary and that's when when he does it and he's not going to black out but dr brand blacks out and they're able to do it they don't the only other scene that i think has been able to achieve this level of intensity is uh damien chazelle's first man where ryan gosling is up there and if you remember he goes into a spin and he's getting so close to blacking out and he he can't stop the spin Mm. oh so good yeah (laughs) yeah. So <laughs> and even
1: f- and from I would say from Dr. Mann's introduction, especially when he turns on them until the ending scene where he finally makes it to the Tesseract and we got to get the answer for everything. Um it's just kind of it's it's just go 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 from there until yeah. that until we finally get a breaking point with the Tesseract scene and uh makes the movie so much more I I like the second act a second act a lot because of this. Um you do get to the the Dr. Mann sequence and you get to see it kind of just go 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 until they finally get to the ending where everything is revealed
0: and i do appreciate that no one doesn't forget about the people on earth here and the second act as well even in the end of the third act because i do like the juxtaposition of uh, murph on earth mm. well, that rhymes She, well, well, I do like the juxtaposition of the desperation occurring out in space and then the desperation occurring here on earth and that they know if they both fail in their endeavors, then it's game over because Murph makes the seemingly irrational decision to burn down her brother's crops. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the population is in very short supply of that, but the only way really for their salvation is. To have that destruction, but that is the catalyst as well for Cooper, because if the endurance hadn't been destroyed, then he would have went and came back to earth and they never would have got the data. He never would have went into the Tesseract and figured out the gravity equation. So because of that, that is um, how he is able to, they are both able to figure it out and they both converge really well. He converges outside of mm-hmm. time and he's able to communicate with her across time and space that way. Where is Hans Zimmer's Oscar for the score? I, I mean
1: <laughs> See, I told you. I told you when this came out and I was like this needs this is getting a, an Oscar for score. If it doesn't get an Oscar for score, I'm going to be mad. And then it got the nomination, but it ended up going to uh Grand Budapest Hotel, which, don't get me wrong, is a amazing score um by the time I'm just like nope that's dumb oscars are rigged this is stupid you know
0: i think alexander desplat he's won enough times he is completely <laughs> an incredible composer he was mm-hmm. also nominated twice that year for the imitation game as well that's so right. he had yeah. he had the best chance of winning but dang i will say across all of nolan's films i will say um this is my favorite score so far
1: absolutely yeah And this is one of my favorite movie scores just kind of in general uh i actually own this score on on vinyl, just mm-hmm. like I own the Dark nice. Knight. Yeah, um, it th- sounds amazing, by the <laughs> way, <laughs> on on that record. Uh, yeah, no, there are and there there's a version of the score that exists. It's called the. Uh, is it the Interstellar projection edition or something along those lines? I forget the exact name of it. You can find it on YouTube. Um, there are a couple of tracks and there, are two in particular. Um, that are way better than anything else in the standard soundtrack. There is organ variation and there's TikTok. Those two are incredible pieces to listen to. And if you ever have the, the chance, uh, again, you can just find them on YouTube. Definitely listen to them because they are incredible. I absolutely love them.
0: I would love to own the score. I'm maybe not on vinyl. I don't have those capabilities yet, but at least the CD. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to own that and Vangelis' score from Blade Runner. Well, yep, I own them both on uh, vinyl. <laughs> jealous. Personally, I feel this does have the best writing insofar as like character dialogues go. And I think it is their most ambitious plot. And I really do think this is probably their best plot. Um, I like this a little bit more than Inception plot-wise. But my major issue is... There are quite a few muddled plot points in here that they are asking us to invest in. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe there's a muddled explanation of why it's even reasonable for Earth to just be dying like this. Um, And I also... The whole gravity equation is, I'd probably say, pretty muddled and confusing. I was really doing my best to understand this this time around. And in some ways, I get it because if you think of how earth is a sphere it's a globe with and it has a curvature but people on the bottom if you want to call it that don't fall off and it's still able to float out in space and time so in the end you see them in this big cylinder which is kind of like earth in a way that's how they're able to achieve instead of it being like a giant cruise ship like in Wally, where they live on that, they're able to live more on a cylindrical Earth like thing and also be able to get off the planet in that and gravity and make it sustainable. It's so confusing, and I think the reason that is is because it's all a theory, it's not even a real thing. They're just trying to make up something here, I'd say.
1: Yeah, now there is definitely theory in here. I know we t- briefly talked about this. It's all uh, things. Yeah. Uh where th- again, they do take some narrative liberties. Uh, but I think that they no one definitely does this to kind of stupefy the audience watching it, right? He is trying to show them kind of like how we talked about in prestige, uh trying to show them some show them something that they've never seen before. And even though it is Real to an extent, I suppose. Scientifically, there are theories to back all this up. But again, they are, of course, as the word suggests, just theories. Um, He does make for a compelling picture. Now, it does still garner a unique experience um, with those elements in it. And then if they were not, but I do agree with you, there are moments where it is kind of hard to wrap your head around some of the things in this movie, both scientifically and some of it also plot wise.
0: I mean, even for like writing the plot description and making sure I had this movie down, there were a number of points I had to go back and rewatch a couple times Mm -hmm. just to be sure I understood it, because also I don't think very many people are used to the concept of relativity Yeah, it is a mind blowing thing to think because of gravity and the rotations of how we measure days, that is how long, you know, our life is going to last. Whereas when they're next to Gargantua, the gravity is, you know, 4000 times that of Earth, it's so strong, that it makes time move way faster, right? Right. So I love those concepts. I think they're mind blowing and they're very exciting and they make for great storytelling movies for audiences to, you know, dive into. Right. But nevertheless, I'm still disappointed that this whole gravity equation isn't explained very well because they're asking us to make that like one of the major points of investment. If they can't figure this out, then humanity is just going to perish. I understand they're trying to get humanity off the earth and probably get onto ships to get out of there. I don't know, my only thought is there, ha- you have to reach a certain speed, like space shuttles have to reach a certain speed to uh, break from the Earth's gravity. It's called escape velocity. So I'm they don't even bring that up in the movie. I mean, that definitely has to be a factor is to create a vessel large enough to escape the Earth's uh, gravitational pull. I mean, you'd have to be going insanely fast. Uh, I don't know. There's just too much to that. That's probably my biggest disappointment with the movie is the gravity equation. I just still am not quite sure what it all means.
1: Yeah. My, my, I guess one of my big gripes of it is, and this goes along with the gravity equation, is just the twist that it's all built on a lie. Um, they don't, and I felt this when I was watching it in the theater, they, they don't really explain it very well. Um, they explain that it's a lie, right? But I think be partially because it's hard to explain this gravity equation already. Um, it's kind of hard to understand, well, why would he do this? why why is it a lie? is the question I remember having in the theater um, when they when it was revealed that dr uh, or Professor Brand had wrote this equation, but spent the rest of his life after getting to a certain point, kind of just going in circles. Um, intentionally going in circles. So it, 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 I do remember this being very confusing. And even now, I, I think it's not really told very well. This The twist of, uh, oh, yeah, this equation is a lie. And in fact, their entire mission is only to drop off, drop off those embryos on a planet and hope that the human race survives because there's no way that we're going to survive here on Earth, right? It, I find that to be kind of like, uh, okay, like they, it's not explained very well.
0: It's not explained very well at all. And honestly, it wasn't until this watching that I realized that Professor Brand was truly lying to them. Mm -hmm. Um, I never was very clear on the dynamics of that situation, but come to find out he did figure out the equation of gravity. It's just the possibility wasn't achievable without the data from the black hole, which is like a, which is like, um. Just gravity in its most raw, unbridled form is how I tried to understand it. Yeah, There is a 50-minute documentary on the Blu-ray that does delve into a lot of the science of it, which does make things a lot, a little easier to understand. I'm not sure I'd say a lot easier to understand. Yeah. But nevertheless, if you are seeking answers, I watched it, then watch that. And there's so much jargon in this Tesseract, Event Horizon I understand it all now, yeah. but in the movie, I'm like, what is an Event Horizon? Uh-huh. There's uh, also a movie
1: called Event Horizon, different movie, though.
0: I was thinking that the whole time. I'm like, now I got to watch Event Horizon. Very different movie. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I'm curious. But now I got to bring it up. Now I got to explain it. Event Horizon is basically just the point of no return from yep. a black hole. Essentially. Yeah.
1: When yeah, I know that when you're heading into a black hole, there's a certain point. Once you hit that point, which is the event horizon, you can't go back. Right. You're you're done. You're sucked in. That's it.
0: I mean, in that deathbed sequence, I do like how he says, "Mirth, mirth, mirth." He does say, "Murph, you have the faith to carry on and and hopefully figure this out." But mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I lied to everyone. I thought it was for the best. He's like, "Yeah, we all are going to die." And that's just one thing that I feel like no one is asking a little too much of us to believe is that someday, I mean, and this is like, well, I don't know, 50 years into the future that the earth will just stop working. Essentially this blight, which is a type of disease that just wipes out crops. It's essentially going to wipe out all of our food um, sources in the bonus features. They kind of chalk this up to like climate change, even though that's never called out in the movie. Um, Yeah,
1: I would say it's kind of like visually there, but they don't really ever call it out. You're right.
0: I mean, I I appreciate that the Dust Bowl comes back because Nolan's like, this has happened before. What if it does happen again? Mm -hmm. And that is also going to kill a lot of people along with the oxygen in the atmosphere. There's just so much that he's asking us to go along with here that... It's hard for me to understand because parts of this movie are trying to be so realistic, whereas other parts like this setup, I'm like, well, this feels more science fiction than any of the space stuff almost.
1: Yeah, You can't can't grow
0: crops anymore ever. Yeah,
1: yeah, I I can buy uh, the setup of this movie. Um, I also see it partially as we've run the earth dry of resources. Um, We're starting run out of food because we've used up all the food. and, And of course, this. This blight is also not helping things at all. So I also saw partially that, that we just run the earth dry of what we've, what we usually use. Um, So I can, I can, I can kind of, I can buy the setup and the setting of this movie where the earth is essentially just drying up, right? We can't stay here forever because it's kind of just everything that could sustain life is disappearing, right? That's, Kind of the setup that we're given, and corn is one of the last things uh, that ex- that can be grown consistently on Earth to keep us alive. Um, <laughs> and as they say, this is the last. This is also um, going away too. So I can I can buy the setup of this movie. It is very science fiction and has been done multiple times, obviously. But I can buy. It. I think also Christopher Nolan does a good does a pretty good job of making it still investing to the story. Because of how he films and executes a lot of the uh, city scenes and you get to see how the dust, the, the, the dust bowl comes through certain towns and stuff a couple of times. So I find myself invested, but yeah, you are right. It is somewhat of a cliche to have this setting.
0: Yeah, a lot of the dust is actual stuff. Yeah. Um, is shot in camera. It's not visual effects. They just set up giant fans. Mm-hmm. And blue dirt everywhere. Yep. Um, They did actually grow that corn for real. That's not CGI. Yep. Yeah, I mean,
1: they donated it to somebody, didn't they? Or they donated it a lot, like pretty much all of it after they were done filming.
0: I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, remember,
1: I forget who, but I know that they, like once they were done filming, they
0: donated it. I was trying to pinpoint where this was located because it's supposed to be in the Midwest, mm-hmm. but there are some kind of mountains in the background. And I'm like, there you can't grow corn by any mountains. And uh come to find out it's in Calgary, Canada. So ah, okay. ah, and you're not even supposed to grow corn up there. Like no one's like ever done it before. Yeah <laughs> except they did well, it. They did it. <laughs> they yeah, did they it. did it. But no, I mean I, I find the setup to be fascinating, but at the same time, I almost wish there was a little bit more time to give us an explanation why, but that's not really the point of the movie. The movie's already yeah. long enough. Um one of the other things that I just found to be utterly ridiculous was Topher Grace kind of just pops into this movie here at the very mm-hmm. end for kind of just because he, he is, I guess. And when he's listening to the family's lungs, um, when Tom comes in, he's like, okay, you need to get the, these people out of here right now.
1: Ah, yes. Like, ah, a, yes. Like a
0: comet is just coming towards the house and Casey Affleck or Tom just comes up and just decks him, just clocks him right there. I'm like, what is this scene? Uh, Completely ill-defined motivation in this scene. That that was completely unnecessary, I'd say.
1: I mean, I would find uh, Tom's character, especially when he's older, to be completely ill-defined in general Um, (laughs) because he, I, I still, I guess, don't completely understand what's going on with this character. I mean, I know that he always wanted to run dad's farm. I understand that. And I think, but that's about all I really understand of his character when it comes to this scene, because once he becomes an adult, he feels like he's, it's like, he's always angry all the time. And if somebody tries to mess with the farm in any kind of way, then he's willing to kick them out. Um, so when it gets to that scene where uh, they, it's also partially tied It's also intercut with the Dr. Man scene, whether they're there to try and save the family. It, it feels like it's just, added it's just an added obstacle just to make the scene more intense
0: yeah i do kind of hate that kind of uh i don't know whatever you want to call it almost false tension or i guess i should say more so manufactured tension
1: yeah that's a good way of putting it
0: where he immediately resorts to violence mm-hmm. so then merv has to burn down his cornfield and it makes it's supposed to make it even scarier the fact that he's going to come back like is he going to come back with a gun And the world's ending anyway. Is he just going to shoot Topher Grace? Mm -hmm. And Topher Grace pulls out the tire iron. Nothing comes of the tension in the scene. Um, So this time around, I didn't find it very tense. I mean, in some ways, I think of Tom as, you know, he buried his grandfather out there. His father left them all these years. He's become the man of the house. He is holding down the homestead. That's the multi-generational family farm. And that's his one patch of earth. He has to leave. It's what's theirs in a yep. world that is increasingly losing everything. I'm reading all of that into it, though. None of that is really uh, brought up in the movie, unfortunately. But yeah. I just got to say, he just immediately resorts to violence, just punches him in the face. I mean, come on. He doesn't doesn't yell at him or anything. Yeah. I, sh-
1: I mean, I I guess I can, can kind of see um, <laughs> uh, what happens, him being kind of a symbol symbolic of what happens to humanity when we don't strive to innovate or explore. Maybe I can kind of see why when given enough time and given enough stagnation, this is what it does to this is what it will do to humanity. I guess I can kind of see that in his character, but right. they don't really ever define that anywhere. Um, I can see it, but that still does not ma- that still does not exactly fix what you said, what you said uh, is manufactured intensity.
0: You know, this could probably work pretty well as a mini series if they wanted to explore these characters. Yeah, I could, further. Yeah. yeah. Now, this brings me to my greatest issue with the movie that I just think is bad is the bait and switch. And maybe you won't see it this way, but the fact that they keep bringing up these transcendental aspects of someone put a black hole out, or excuse me, a wormhole out in space. I just learned the difference between a black hole and a wormhole today. I had to <laughs> rewrite my plot summary because yes, of it. They are
1: very different. They are very different.
0: I kept. I, I, I was so confused, honestly, because I thought they went into the black hole and that's how they got to these other planets. So what's this other like black hole they're going into? I had no idea what's going on, but I get it now. Don't worry. So anyways, back to my main point someone put the wormhole out in space 50 years ago right and they keep referring to they in quotes they dr brand is like touching them and it's like her time and space is like bending on her body as well um there's so many things that just point to a higher power helping them achieve them when you come to find out at this core, this movie is about humanism, where it's all about humanity will save itself, which to me is completely unsatisfying in such a desperate situation, in a situation even beyond their thoughts. They can't even understand a black hole or the data within it. Right. They're still just going to be able to figure it out and construct a fifth dimension tesseract. I, You don't have to call it God, Christopher Nolan, but... You have to give some reference to the creator, I would say, of all of this in order to really make it uh, feel believable. I just feel like I hate this ending, honestly. Where it's, don't you get it, Tars? It's us. We're saving ourselves. Yeah. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> come to find out, Cooper is the one who finds this all out. Yeah. No, you're you're correct. It. They have a lot of talk about. Oh, it's these these beings is what they call them. They is what they refer to them as. Mm-hmm. Um, they are the ones who did all of this. Who are they? Some fifth dimensional beings, man. Um, I kind of, I like the idea. Well, I guess I should say this. I would like it better if, again, they didn't bring it up every five minutes, right? Um, Right. Because I feel like they bring it up so often that it makes it like, okay, what, what are they really? You know, after a certain point. And obviously it ends up becoming... Uh, it ends up being uh, Cooper's influence is what it actually is, aside from the wormhole being the thing that's being placed there. If it were subtle enough and had they and had Christopher Nolan not, I guess, uh, pushed so hard for um, them to be in this movie and kind of make it, you know, not as in your face about it. I feel like they could have gone away with it just just being that these being something um, not humans, just something put the wormhole there so we could go and discover it for ourselves. I think that's, for me at least, that's sufficient enough. But yeah. you are correct, it, especially in this latter half, it, it kind of exposes that this movie is very humanistic. Um, because it is about how us humans are going to go explore. We are the ones who are explorers and and we are the ones who are explorers, right? We, are, right? we have regressed in all of this. Uh, we are the ones who need to go out there and save ourselves, right? And they do save themselves. And so you're right. It is very humanistic in that way. So if they kept it at just beings are the ones who are there and kept that very subtle and kind of open-ended, I think that that would have been fine if they, of course, handed it in the right way.
0: I completely agree. I would have, a, would have much more appreciated it if Nolan would have kept it ambiguous. You know, I don't, I never read it as aliens whatsoever. And I'm so glad it wasn't aliens (laughs) but you know if some people wanted to read it that way that's fine but i think the constant usage of they and there's always some higher power helping them to achieve that Mm -hmm. that does lend the idea that there is some transcendental operation going on that is just beyond any sort of human's uh, mind or control and even this fifth dimensional space is constructed within three dimensions so Cooper is able to work within it. I just hate the logical fallacy that it opens up mm-hmm. of humanity in the future can go back in time and save itself in the past and correct this issue. How in the world would they get into the future if they never figured out the gravity equation? They had to, I mean, I, I just hate this like circular logic it just really frustrated me where he's like, we evolved so far into the future. That's how I know it's we're going to be okay. That's how I know we're going to succeed is because we've evolved into a fifth dimension. And because we're that great, we can now open up uh, this tesseract for me to go into to save ourselves in the past. Well, but if you're following a, a linear timeline, then eventually how did humanity ever figure itself out? There has to be some kind of correlation between changing the variables you know you can't change one variable and not affect the other right i don't know how you feel about that but i just found that to be frustrating
1: right well and typical to knowing this is not exactly told uh completely linear- linearly he likes to tell stories with some kind of time element that is skewed right right so i i, I guess i'm seeing this as uh you're right it is kind of a loop of Kind of somewhat a paradox, I guess, a logical paradox yeah, of how the story plays it. out. Because uh somewhere in the future, because of what um Cooper find or because of what Cooper transmits to Murph from TARS, that black hole stuff, um, that's what allows the test track to be built, right? Um and because that test is able to be built by humans way way in the future, they plant that in the past so that way Cooper can then find it and the cycle begins here, right? So that's that's where uh, this story becomes really uh can, can be very easily confusing, is because we did it to ourselves, yes, but we had to get to that point first. Um to we had to get to that point first of actually finding the information and then we can do build the Tesseract and yada yada yada. So it's it's just it's it is kind of a logical paradox.
0: Yeah, and it's just disappointing that in a movie that does feel so awe-inspiring and and so transcendental in so many aspects, that ultimately it ends on humans are essentially the end-all, be-all of achievement of creation. They're the highest um, order in the world. Mm. They're the highest order of creation, I should say. Um, I don't know. That just feels like a big letdown there. And I know a lot of people saw this coming where Matthew McConaughey was the ghost. He was going to be the one to manipulate it in the end. I know um, if you listen to the Now Playing Review, they said they figured it out within the first few minutes after he calls it out. So I guess with this story as well, some people saw a lot of this as very heavy-handed foreshadowing.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And I guess that's kind of why a little bit ago I said that if they just kept those beings as just beings and kept it at that, I felt like it would have worked fine because there really isn't any stone unturned in the story. Everything, everything I feel is explained Um, and to its detriment because it doesn't leave. It's kind of funny enough that this movie is about how uh, humans are supposed to be explorers and stuff, but it leaves nothing to explore within its story. It leaves some cool concepts to think about, but I don't think that, because it's so, I I would say, surrounded wrapped up nicely in this bow, that there isn't anything to kind of sit and theorize about um, from its story, because everything I feel is explained. There really isn't, as I said, any stone left unturned here. There's nothing that you can take from what you've seen in this experience of watching Interstellar and think about what you would think the story goes in a certain direction, or, right. or certain elements being a way that maybe you interpret it differently from somebody else. I think that's kind of one of the letdowns for me is how unsubtle it is about a lot about how it tells its story.
0: And that's one cue I just wish no one would have taken from Kubrick is with two thousand one. There is so much room to interpretation. I mean, oh, I, oh yeah, yeah. That
1: movie is so incredibly philosophical um, that. And because of it, because of how ph- philosophical it is, it makes that movie somewhat hard to follow when you first watch it, because oh. it, it feels, <laughs> especially anything, so obtuse. You're just like, what? It, what? what's happening when yeah. you get to that ending half?
0: Yeah, I know I wrote a college paper on it, and I turned that into a video for this channel, giving my mm-hmm. interpretation of the film, which I'm not saying is the definitive interpretation, but nevertheless, that's how I chose to perceive it, which is one reason I love that movie, is because it's endlessly rewatchable for that aspect is because you'll, you can always find something new to read into it. And other people have so many different ideas about it as well. Oh yeah. Whereas, and it's, it's hard not to um, see this, the end of this movie when Cooper goes into the black hole, when um, Dave in 2001 goes like beyond the infinity And he does, he is transported to some place where he sees himself at various stages of his life. And then ultimately, there is the star child. And I think that movie lends itself far more to transcendence than this movie ever does because Mm -hmm. Kubrick thankfully lets it be that way. And Kubrick even said, um, at the heart of 2001 is the concept of God. Yeah, we don't get that here. It's the concept of human ingenuity. But (sighs) <sighs> Gosh, that that is my one letdown for the movie I was yeah.
1: I think that's my biggest problem with it is for a movie, I'm not saying this movie should have been another 2001. That's not what I'm saying. Um, because 2001 is a completely different beast. Yeah. There are things like, there are elements of this movie that are like 2001, but it is not trying to be 2001. And I don't think that it should have been like 2001. Um, what I'm saying is that um, this movie for being about exploration and being about survival. Um, and then of course, these characters being driven by love to do to finish the task that they've started. I find it kind of ironic that for a movie that talks about these things, it does not itself lend itself to be explored as much of its story as, as uh, I guess I feel like it could have been. Because I feel like this this movie should have been more um, more open ended for how certain elements play out, or even how the whole movie play out. Again, if those beings were just left out as beings and not being humans, that lends to so many more theories about the movie, which I feel would have helped it uh, in the long run, at least for me. I think that's my biggest problem with it is how unopen ended it is, how closed this movie ends up being, and how much of a how much it wraps everything up in a perfect bow when you really finish it, in my own opinion.
0: Yeah, and in the end, it ends up being more of a, almost more of an amusement park attraction ride that you just go along, and it has a clean beginning, middle, and end instead of a more of a deep exploration. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a great adventure, but you're right. These types of science fiction movies they have to have more open-endedness because it's just stuff we can't understand and we'll never understand, honestly. So that, I don't know the way they wrap it up so nicely and they're able to achieve everything perfectly. uh, mm, I don't know, but Mm. I'm very curious, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for interstellar?
1: Interstellar for me now at the time, I, I think at the time I gave it a perfect 10 when I walked out of the theater.
0: Well, I want I mean, to say I, that's the case. I wouldn't be surprised.
1: I want to say that's the case, and I'm pretty sure that is. Uh, at the time when I first watched it, I thought this is one of the best movies I'd ever seen. And I was obsessed with it for a, a long while. Um, I listened to the soundtrack w- way too often, <laughs> and uh, I just kind of fell in love with it. I wanted to, It's one of these things where I just be, kind of became obsessed with it. I wanted to learn everything about it. Um, and then over the years, I kind of moved on to other things. Um, but I always kept this one in the back of my mind to some degree. Coming back to it now, I haven't seen it for a while actually, but coming back to it now, I wanted to go in with as open to mind as possible as I usually do, right? And I think this movie has a very unique experience, um, which is kind of tailored to just how no one directs. You don't see a space epic like this really anytime. time. Um, maybe Star Wars, maybe the original 2001 that uh, this movie pulled a lot off of, um, those are big space epics very different and tonally. Um, but you don't, again, you don't see this very often. And if they are like this, they're sequels to something, right? So it's kind of unique to see something like this where it's origi- It's not tied to anything, it's its own movie. It's a space epic made by Christopher Nolan. How, you know, how could you could it get any better? Uh, it kind of could. Uh, and I say that because this story is something that I feel for, as I just said, being about exploration, is not itself very exploratory, very explorative in itself because of how much it doesn't leave up to audience interpretation. I think there, there are very good elements in this movie. I think the music is incredible. I love the soundtrack and it's still one of my favorites of all time. I think this movie is by far the best looking Christopher Nolan movie that we have um, up until this point. Uh, this is visually and auditorily Again, the best movie we've had from no one, but I think its story is something that I find to be its weakest point. Um, So at the end of the day, uh, I still like this movie a lot and I still actually need to buy it on Blu-ray. I used to have it on DVD until I sold it, um, hoping that I'd get the Blu-ray. So I'll pick it up still, but I, I think that its shortcomings hold me from it being something that I think is absolutely incredible. So at the end of the day, 7 out of 10, but still a very high recommend for me.
0: Interstellar is an emotional tour de force really like none other. The only film that has gotten close in recent memory is Ad Astra, which I love as well. The Nolan brothers weave such significant themes into this film that bolsters this fascinatingly perilous journey. Themes of love, faith, fatherhood, ingenuity, and perseverance are so well told you can't walk out of this movie not feeling grateful to be alive and for those around you. Another reason this film is powerful is the inclusion of Hans Zimmer's Oscar worthy score. When Cooper is dying, rescued, and spinning the ship to dock, I doubt there's a dry eye in the house. I know I was gripping my armrests while fighting back tears as I witnessed a father achieving the impossible to save his family. Despite this being Nolan's longest film, this is an epic odyssey where you are meant to feel the length desperation and exploration of journey. Unfortunately, I am disappointed by one major aspect. I do think the setup for Earth dying isn't reasonable, but aside from that, is the way no one deals with transcendence or a lack thereof. Having humanity save itself lends to the power of human ingenuity and will, a major theme in this movie, but ultimately our abilities can only go so far before they fail. Overcoming this impossible task by saving ourselves in the past from the future is a logical fallacy and one that is not satisfying. Cooper has to rely on a higher power. Despite that power being teased as possibly God, it's in fact evolved humans. A transcendent aspect would have worked perfectly. In fact, it was necessary to this film about greater forces and beliefs, i.e. gravity. I mean, it's beyond humanity's control that the only possible solution could come from the creator. Alas, if no one would have taken that bold step towards God instead of copying copying out to humanism, this would have been his finest film. Interstellar is a great film and receives nine stars out of ten with a high recommend.
1: Oh, wow. So, I mean, we both gave it high recommends. Yes. Uh, But interesting. Yeah, seven versus a nine. I guess... Uh, I'm not super surprised that uh you gave it as high of a score i, I may have glanced at your uh what your letterbox score beforehand ah. kind of hard to miss when I only follow three people <laughs> uh,
0: well that's true I know because you haven't rated anything on letterbox in so long I don't I, you' i never know your scores but Mm-hmm. Could say mine. I rate everything on Letterboxd, so feel free to follow me, listeners. But I will say, I was not expecting you to give this a seven. I was surprised by that.
1: I so I knew I was at least going to give it an eight, a seven or an eight. I wasn't really looking at a nine, but a six was way too low. Um, and after I guess discussing some of the details, I felt like Seven is about hmm. right for me. Now, if it were to lean one way or the other, it would definitely lean more towards an eight than it would a six, obviously. Sure. But yeah.
0: So does that mean you like Ad Astra better than Interstellar? Or have you not seen Ad Astra enough?
1: I think I need to see Ad Astra again to make that decision. Um, I remember really enjoying Ad Astra. Um, I don't... But if I were to to decide which one I think is better, I think it's a it's a hard one. Mm. Probably Interstellar, but then again, I've I've also seen that movie. I've also I've seen this movie probably about five, six, seven times. I've only seen it an extra once.
0: Now, as far as pick up or pass goes for me, I did pick up the Blu-ray. Uh, I think it was actually a Christmas present a number of years ago, and it was the um, Blu-ray DVD digital HD version. The film is on disc one. The special features alone, which are three hours long. I believe it. Are on disc two. And then disc three is uh, you get the DVD version. But it also was really cool because mine came with a collectible IMAX film cell from an actual 70 millimeter film print.
1: That's right. Yeah. My cousin, Tommy, who has has been on this podcast um, for Jurassic Park, he has, I think, that same thing. He's got the steelbook. Um, and it also came with, uh, the IMAX print. Yeah.
0: So I pulled that out for the first time to take a look at it and that's 70 millimeters, pretty large, but it looks really cool. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Yep. For me, I, I think I mentioned this in my closing statements. Ye- yeah. I'll, I'm going to pick it up. I don't know why I haven't picked it up yet. I'm deciding if I want to get the steelbook or not. Cause if, if I can get the steelbook, uh, these, the one that Tommy has, it looks really, really good.
0: Well, so after watching Interstellar, Alan, do you have any movies or TV shows you recommend the listeners check out?
1: Yeah, so I guess I've kind of already, we've already talked about 2001 Space Odyssey, but that would be one if you haven't seen it, definitely go watch it if you like Interstellar. um, Check this one out, it'll bend your mind, I feel, way more than this one will, um, because it is so philosophically grounded. Um, other than that, you did mention Ad Astra and I didn't have that on my list, but now that you mention it, I definitely see it. I can I could definitely see where Ad Astra pulls from Interstellar as well. Um yeah. So That's definitely a movie about check a father us. and son. Yeah, exactly. So I would definitely check out Ad Astra if you liked Interstellar. That's a more modern example of somewhat in the same vein as Interstellar.
0: Yeah, I, I recommend as well Ad Astra in two thousand one, both great movies. And I also recommend First Man, which is a factual retelling of the Mission to the Moon. But they do have some incredibly intense space sequences as well that I think First Man, unfortunately, has become somewhat of an overlooked or underrated movie. Yeah. You just don't hear much about it. And it didn't have really any presence at the Oscars. I I think it was nominated for a couple things, but I was shocked to see that it didn't get the love that I think it deserved well the question after the show is did you get to experience interstellar in the IMAX tell us about your experience I remember mine was completely incredible I loved it so if it ever comes back I know inception is coming back to theaters maybe then I would love to so I, I have seen the dark knight in the IMAX I have seen interstellar in the IMAX um I don't know if I got to see Dunkirk no I saw Dunkirk at home Um, I think I saw Dark Knight Rises in the IMAX, so I've got a pretty decent track record of getting to see Nolan in the IMAX. Of course I'm going to see Tenet in the IMAX.
1: Of all the Christopher Nolan movies that I've seen, I've always seen Dunkirk in IMAX. Uh, Um, I've always seen three, oh technically four if we want to count the Dark Knight Rises even though I saw it at the drive-in. I've seen three or four Nolan movies in theaters.
0: Mm. Well, that's about to change with Tenet that's right. Which I can't wait for. I, this, just going through these movies makes me even more excited for Tenant. And even if we do have to wait, I'm okay with that. But Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with No One's Final Film Until Tenant. We will be back with Dunkirk. So don't forget to share with your friends and family. And we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. It was nominated for Best Production Design, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Original. No, no. No wait. I have not written down. Da- I was trying to do it from memory and I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um yeah, here we go. Okay. Causing an explosion. Well, that's exactly what happens. Man perishes. Wait, you scroll down. Oh. <laughs> Gosh, this is so long. <laughs> <laughs> beyond human's control, that the only possible solution... (laughs) What (laughs) What are you doing with your finger?
1: I don't know. I'm just going to mess it around, I guess.
0: (laughs) Uh, That was one giant run-on sentence, and I got to read the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) A transcendent aspect would have worked perfectly. In fact, it was necessary to this film about... Stop. Now I'm going to I'm going to (laughs) laugh. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I I gotta do this for the rest of the, for my thing. Okay, <clears throat> um, I don't know if I got to see Dunkirk. No, I saw Dunkirk at home. Um, I think I saw Dark Knight Rises in the IMAX. So I've got a pretty decent track record of getting to see Nolan in the IMAX. Of course, I'm going to see Tenet in the IMAX.
1: Yeah, I know. I've seen. I think I've seen um, Dunkirk in IMAX. Let me look it up real quick. I'm gonna sc- um, Dracula Untold. What? Hobbit. Does world? <laughs> episode seven. Rogue one. Pirates. Wonder Woman. I saw one. I I saw Wonder Woman in IMAX.
0: Oh wow! Hmm. I saw Wonder Woman out of town.